If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Actually, what I discovered when I was recreating the food that kind of occurs in Dickens's books is that a lot of it was actually completely delicious and the Victorians were sort of setting down the traditional foods that we now think of as English. That was Penn Vogler talking to us about the food of the Dickensian era. listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History Magazine. For today's episode, we've spoken to Penn Vogler, a food historian and author whose latest book takes a novel approach to exploring the food of Victorian Britain. She spoke to our staff writer, Ellie Cawthorn. So I'm joined by Penn Vogler, um, who's the author of Dinner with Dickens, which is a collection of, frankly, quite scrumptious-looking recipes from the Victorian period, which are inspired by the life and works of Charles Dickens. So the recipes range from, um, you have a blue... 12th cake and you have pork pies and vividly coloured jellies, pineapple rum and even gruel makes an appearance. Um, Can you tell us a bit about why you wanted to 
write about Victorian food and Dickens' relationship with food? Um, I wanted to write about Victorian food because it has a pretty terrible reputation, actually. We think of Victorian food, we think more about gruel, and perhaps Dickens is partly responsible for this, or we think about stodge. Um, and if you look at, I'm really glad you picked out some of those recip- those sort of examples, because actually what I discovered when I was recreating the food that kind of occurs in Dickens's books is that a lot of it was actually completely delicious. And the Victorians were sort of setting down the traditional foods that we now think of as English. I mean, they were sort of obviously building from the last century. But the sort of traditional English staples come from Victorian times. And a lot of things I discovered as well is that they can teach us a thing or two, the Victorians, about cooking. You know, they have a few tricks up their sleeve about making, for example, sticking treacle into soda bread to make it last, um, making very light, delicious kind of moussey puddings and that sort of thing. And I was really pleased to discover those things and, um, you know, kind of recreate them in recipes. But Dickens and food, Dickens is thought of as a quite a foodie writer. And I've written about Jane Austen and food before, and she's not really thought of as a food writer. Um, so Dickens gave a different set of difficulties because he writes so much about food. I had the delight of kind of rereading all his books, all his novels, or nearly all his novels, and figuring out how to kind of find... Um, a dinner, a breakfast, an occasion to kind of recreate it. And I had so much to choose from that actually that was quite tricky. But um, I wanted to write about Dickens and food because it's so important to him, because of his biography, because of his own experience. Food, nourishment, care, um, all the kind of emotional and social situations of food are massively important to Dickens. And that was one of the things that inspired me to to go and kind of discover more. I think that's something that your book is really good at highlighting, that um, food isn't just a way for adding colour to Dickens. It's actually a kind of a, a way for him to indicate social standing, wealth, and a way for him to kind of satirise um, the inequalities of Victorian society. Can you give us some examples of that? What I think we really need to thank Dickens for, another um, another sort of social commentators of his day, is the idea that poor people have just as much a right to good food and to enjoy their food as wealthy people have. And he has these images, for example, Joe the crossing sweep sits on a little step in Bleak House and eats dirty bread. What I was really struck by was how incredibly, how incredibly balanced his... Um, his portrayals of kind of different kind of food occasions are. And when I say balance, what I mean is that he would balance two occasions. So, for example, in Little Dorrit, um, he talks about a kind of a a family meal with the Casbys, who are quite wealthy, who've got enough resources to create a rather delicious meal. Talks about a, a gravy boat full of shrimp sauce. But it's not a terribly happy occasion, it's rather uncomfortable. Arthur Clennam is sitting there just feeling a bit... Um, and that's just balanced by a little reference earlier um, in the book when uh, Little Dorrit, as a child, is taken out from the Marshall Sea for treats, which might be a shrimp tea. And I love that sense that he's sort of... Um, he's showing us the best and the worst of food and letting us draw our own conclusions about the circumstances in which people eat. So a 
a very, very kind of, a rather more dramatic example, for example, might be Nicholas Nickleby. There seem to be quite a lot of breakfasts in Nicholas Nickleby, for example. And the completely execrable Wickwackford Squeers, of course, takes these poor little boys, he's the nasty schoolmaster from Yorkshire, who takes these poor little boys and their first uh, introduction to the kind of the nourishment that he's going to give them is he takes them to a, a the Saracen's Head in London before they go up to Yorkshire and he waters down the milk that he's going to allow them for, for, for breakfast. And um, he says, you know, only take one little sip at a time because that's all you're going to get. And he believed, or he pretends to believe, that he's doing them a favour, that he's helping to kind of improve their moral standing by, or their kind of, you know, their sort of sense of kind of moral purpose by you know, starving their bodies, that somehow it's good for their souls. And there was a kind of Victorian sense that people would justify them to themselves their kind of mistreatment of children by pretending that it was good for the child, good for their kind of moral development. And, of course, if we, we were going back to that thing about balance, there's some lovely breakfasts um, in Yorkshire itself where uh, Nicholas Nickleby comes back, sees his old friends, and they invite him into the... Um, kitchen where they're having this very kind of delicious enormous Yorkshire breakfast with their host who Dickens is always joking about how much he eats and he has these massive Yorkshire pies and he has eggs and he has bread and all the rest of it and huge amounts of sort of relays of food coming and it's a very happy very sociable occasion. Talking about the mistreatment of children an infamous Dickens scene is, of course, Oliver Twist in the workhouse asking for more gruel. You actually, though, suggest that um, gruel wasn't necessarily always just for the destitute. It's funny because there are lots of recipes for gruel. I mean, gruel is now... It's actually quite hard to recreate gruel because it's made from something called groats, which are unprocessed oats. And you can buy them, if you really want to, in a whole food shop. And some people say, you know, they are the most wonderful, wholesome thing and, you know, very nutritious, very delicious. Probably one of the reasons it was so disgusting is that it would have been made... Uh, in a massive pot, often with very thin bases on top of a fire. It probably got burnt. That's like that, you know, reminiscent of that scene of the burnt porridge in um, in Jane Eyre. And if it's your only food, it's probably pretty disgusting. There are recipes, um, Francatelli, who was Queen Victoria's cook, wrote a, a recipe book for what he describes as the working classes, although he's advising them to save up to buy an oven, so he probably isn't really thinking about the destitute, he's probably thinking about people with a bit of money. But for example, he has five recipes for gruel made with things like barley, um, rice, other things, which he probably thinks more as sort of slightly a risotto. Food didn't just inspire Dickens writing. It also inspired his wife, who wrote her own um, book in 1851, which was a bestseller, called What Shall We Have for Dinner? Can you tell us a bit about this book um, and what exactly it involved? Because it was based around bills of fare. So can you explain what, what that meant? I'm so glad you asked about that, because um, bills of fare are menus. It's a kind of old old term really for a menu and what Catherine Dickens did was create a number of sort of different situations either for a small family dinner two to three people right up to 20 people and she suggests different menus for different sort of social occasions and if you analyse the 
the, the amounts of food that she suggests. I mean, it's very, it's high Victoriana. You know, there is a lot of kind of roast meats and, um, and kind of big puddings and that sort of thing. You know, toasted cheese, which was a kind of Dickensian favourite. But if you analyse it, she's clearly, she's quite clever. She's clearly a good housekeeper. For smaller family meals, she suggests quite sort of, um, quite low cost quite substantial, you know, jam roly-poly, jam sandwiches, um, sort of things. And for the big meals, you know, for sort of 14, 16 or 20 people, they're much more elaborate with more courses. And um, there's a very wonderful food historian called Susan Rossi Wilcox, and she has figured out that they're very skillfully put together because they've been made in a small-ish kitchen, small you know, urban kitchen with not a huge number of resources. And so the dishes are all worked out. So some go on the top of the oven, so some go in the oven, some can be made earlier. So poor old Catherine Dickens got rather a bad reputation, mostly because of, you know, Charles's, the way he treated her. And he said that she was incompetent and um, wasn't a good mother. But clearly she was very competent. And these bills of fare are not just showing competence, but they show a kind of sense of hospitality and drama. They're kind of, the big ones are kind of dramas in, food dramas in five acts. They're rather wonderful things. So do we know if the Dickens actually threw dinner parties along Catherine's guidelines? We know that they they threw dinner parties all the time. I mean, Dickens' letters are full of um, invitations to his friends to come and eat. Usually at very precise hours, he'll say, you know, something like, come at a quarter before seven o'clock. Because in, you know, Victorian times, you'd eat at six or seven o'clock. Dinner hours were getting later and later through the century. Um, and, And they were quite, he was quite sort of determinedly, unfashionably early in his dinner hour. Um, and we know we know a little bit of what what he what they ate. So, for example, he would um, invite people, and he in, invited a friend to come and have a sort of back streets kind of walk with him after having a dinner of um, roast mutton stuffed with oysters, for example, which is a a, a dish that comes up in um, in Little Dorrit as well. So. We know, yes, and and Dickens writes about food in his um, letters all the time. He thanks people for sending them a turkey or or thanks an American friend for sending uh, a brace of wild ducks. He writes about oysters with a kind of slightly knowing wink, saying that, you know, Catherine is pregnant, he says, and until then I'll have to refrain from eating oysters because clearly... Uh, everybody knew about their aphrodisiac, supposed aphrodisiac properties even then. So we know about quite a lot of what they ate. And I think um, it's clear that, you know, Catherine, even if she didn't exactly use her own menus every single time, she has recipes in the back of her book as well. And it's clear that they would have drawn on those. So he was really interested in food, but he was interested in food for Tuesday. I think he liked food. He, did, he wasn't, he didn't over, he didn't seem to overindulge, but he loved the sense of being able to invite friends round and have very, very kind of convivial sharing of food. That was incredibly important to him. But I think what his own experience um, as a child made, meant that food was had a kind of emotional importance to him. So he was... And nobody knew about this in his life except a very, very few close friends, but his... His biographer, John Forster, after his death, revealed that he had been um, 
Aged 12, taken out of school, his father was sent to the Marshalsea prison for debt, quite small debt, actually, um, that he'd owed to a baker, I think. And in those... So Dickens' mother and the younger kids went and lived with the... Um, with the with the father in the Marshalsea prison, which is a kind of scene recreated in Little Dorrit. And poor old Dickens had to lodge with somebody and f- more or less fend for himself. And David Copperfield, those little scenes of David Copperfield trying to kind of find his way through London are probably very autobiographical. And David Copperfield, he writes about figuring out, you know, having half a penny and figuring out whether he should buy this kind of flat pudding with stodgy raisins, which wasn't very nice, or something rather more delicious, you know, a kind of a nicer pastry from the that might have been stale from the day before, but that was half price. And he says, how could I, you know, as a child, how could I have possibly been able to husband my resources in a kind of knowledgeable way? And, cl- and clearly that seems to me to be autobiographical. And so Food for Dickens has this incredibly powerful emotional importance he understood hunger. He knew what it was like to be hungry. And his descriptions of hunger in A Tale of Two Cities are absolutely mind-blowing. And it doesn't surprise me if it comes from personal experience. But he explains also, he kind of conveys this hunger for security. There's a real sense that knowing where your next meal is going to come from and knowing that your mum or somebody who's looking after you, is going to provide for you. That's a very, very kind of important thread that goes throughout Dickens' work. And I think that's one of the reasons why some of the... Many of the older housekeepers in his work, like the Mrs Jellyby in Bleak House, are pretty inadequate kind of maternal figures. Probably comes from his um, experience of not being provided for by his own mum. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash history extra. 
Oh, such a clutch pickup, Dave. I was worried we'd bring back the same team. I meant those blackout motorized shades. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Hall of Fame son. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. Go to Blinds.com for up to 45% off. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Could you tell us some about some of the, the real staples of Victorian cookery and also perhaps some of the trends which now have gone out of fashion, the kind of lost food of the Victorians? The staples of Victorian cookery were, um, if you could afford it, meat. Um, and in those days, still, mutton was the most eaten meat. Um, our agricultural practices have changed since then. We've learned how to kind of raise lambs so they get bigger, fatter, earlier. So it's it's economic in a, in a way to eat lamb. So that's why lamb has overtaken mutton for us. But um, mutton was probably served most of the time, maybe 80% of the time. Beef, if you could afford it, but beef was a very, you know, it was a very special meat. Staples are interesting because... Um, the Victorians had just about figured out that potatoes were a good thing. It took a long time for people in the in Europe to start eating potatoes, but they really took off at the end of the 18th, beginning of the 19th century. And what's quite interests me is that um, Catherine Dickens is still serving lots of potatoes, mashed and browned potatoes, whilst the potato famine is raging in Ireland. So for all of Dickens' kind of understanding about poverty and food resources. The middle classes in London didn't seem to adjust what they ate because of the potato famine. But things are are sort of um, staples like rice, pasta. They had, but they used much less. And so their main carbohydrates would have been bread and white bread was still kind of prioritised above anything else. You know, a little bit of brown bread um, was, a, was a kind of, you know, quite nice thing to have if you couldn't get anything better, but white bread was always the best. And Catherine Dickens talks about macaroni, which they'd have had a little bit. You'd have had macaroni cheese, for example, um, and they might have had rice and rice pudding, but they didn't use those as staples as we did. Pastry was a massive staple, so a lot of their carbohydrates would have come in pies, um, you know, the pie crust, and people loved, you know, the Victorian pie man was a major, a major figure. And what about some things that perhaps we now would not would not fancy. There's a very funny description in the old curiosity shop where poor old little Nell and her grandfather, who are running away from London, end up in this pub on a kind of pour on a night of pouring rain. The landlord is making a, a stew which is full of tripe and cow heel and what he calls sprue grass, which is probably asparagus. And it sounds quite frankly disgusting. And we probably don't have to eat those bits of animals any longer. Um, you know, tripe, tripe, tripe. You can eat if you really want to in you know in in kind of restaurants today, but not you know it's few and far between. So I think a lot of the sort of offerly bits of animals we we don't eat today quite so much. But some of the some of the tastes of Victorian Britain have gone. So for example, they still used orange flower water as a um, as a 
taste for kind of biscuits and cakes and things, which is rather nice, rather delicate. And that seems to have gone. We don't use things like mace quite as much as they did. Mace was a mace is the sort of outside of nutmeg and it has a rather lovely nutmeggy sort of woody flavour. It's really lovely. Um, and you can still get it, but it's it's not as kind of prevalent as they used it. And like I say before, mutton, which I actually think is rather delicious. I saw you making a face, but I actually think mutton is rather a delicious, very tasty meat. Very, very hard to get hold of these days. You adapted a lot of the recipes in your book from authentic Victorian cookbooks. Uh, what are they like? There were some brilliant cookbooks in Victorian times. And I think actually um, a lot of them we've absorbed the recipes from people like Eliza Acton, whose Modern Cookery for Private Families was published in 1845. Mrs Beaton took a lot of her recipes, sort of wholesale, really. Um, and we've absorbed a lot of those into our, you know, our kind of domestic cuisine. So she was very influential. Um, a century before her, Hannah, Hannah Glass's book um, was extremely influential and was in print for about 100 years, so until about the mid-19th century. But what interests me is that a few cooks started to write recipe books specifically for poorer people, which is quite interesting. So you had people like Francatelli, who um, wrote a book, you know, the book I mentioned earlier about um, food for the poor, but also Alexis Sawyer, who was a kind of celebrity chef. He was the chef of a reform club. He became very interested in people in, in the famine in Ireland. He became very interested in soldiers not being very well fed in the Crimea. And he produced book, cookbooks for the poor. So there was a beginning, um, beginning to be an understanding that recipe books had to address people who didn't have huge numbers of resources, who might have had an oven and a few pots and pans, but didn't have a whole range of kind of servants to cook for them. But there were plenty of books, you know, aimed at that end of end of um, the market as well. You know, Alexis Sawyer's, some of his kind of grander books would have very, very sort of complicated, um, very French-inspired desserts and quite shiny sort of, you know, meal you know dinners cooked with um jellies and and all sorts of things most of the recipes in your book look really quite achievable and ones that I definitely want to try at home what were some of your personal favorites to make I really enjoyed making um a ham I'd never done a ham before and I was very very interested to see whether it was you know how easy or difficult it was and it turns out on the whole, to be quite an easy thing to do, to buy a, you know, a leg of pork and salt it in your own way, either dry or wet. And I, I did a kind of wet salting because that was, a, that was easier. And it comes up with a really delicious ham. So going back to sort of basics for some of those things, I, was, I really enjoyed doing. I'd never made, made pork pies before either, for example. And um, I really enjoyed making, you know, raising the pies by hand and discovering actually how how easy it is, really. You know, whatever you produce, it might be a bit sort of lopsided or a bit kind of misshapen, but it looks really good. Um, I think the food that Dickens is very inspiring about, obviously we're very inspired by his Christmas, um, 
you know, the, his me- mentions of kind of Christmas food. And pork pie is an interesting one because that's Christmas food in Great Expectations, you know. Great Expectations shows this quite old-fashioned sort of Christmas dinner with a pork pie, although, of course, they don't get the pork pie because Pip's given it to Magwitch. So I really enjoyed making that sort of old-fashioned Christmas food that you get in Great Expectations. And um, you mentioned the Twelfth Cake, which is interesting because Dickens doesn't particularly write about it in his in his novels, but his eldest son, Charlie, was born on Twelfth Night and his godmother, Angela Bedeck-Coots, would give the whole family a Twelfth Cake as a present every year. And Twelfth Cakes are a rather wonderful thing. They're essentially a Christmas cake. But what happened is when... Twelfth Night sort of disappeared from our holidays, probably because it was kind of struck out of the Gazette of Holidays by Queen Victoria. She thought it was rather rowdy, because it was. And probably, you know, sort of the demands of capitalism to have a shorter and shorter Christmas break meant that Twelfth Night just gets kind of cut adrift. But we keep the Christmas cake, and we... we, Sorry, we keep the Twelfth Cake, we just call it a Christmas cake. But it was a delight to be able to... um, make uh, a blue twelfth cake, you know, with blue icing and decorate it with lovely little bits of kind of elegant white, um, you know, icing patterns. That was really fun. As well as um, many food recipes, the book also features quite a few uh, drink recipes. Could you tell us a little bit about what the Victorians drank? Well, I can tell you what Dickens drank. (laughs) Dickens and many, many Victorians, they loved punch, and punch occurs over and over and over again in Dickens's work. It's mentioned about a gazillion times in Pickwick papers. Um, you know, uh, Mr. Pickwick gets drunk on cold punch and gets left in a wheelbarrow um, to, you know, to sleep off his hangover. Dickens loved it, and actually, they, he actually, we actually have a recipe that Dickens wrote in his own hand for his favourite punch, um, and it's quite simply lemons, sugar, orange juice bit of brandy, bit of rum, you know, makes you very rosy-cheeked, merry, very merry. There's a lovely description of Mr Micawber who's desolate at the idea that, you know, his, his latest domestic setup setback, which is his water supply being cut off. And um, David Coffield gets him to make some punch and he's just transformed by the, by the experience of it and the sort of steam and the, and the joy of punch. And so Dickens really believed that people should be able to drink. He didn't believe in the temperance movement at all. He thought that everybody had the right to a drink and a jolly time. And so his characters drink very merrily throughout their books. And there are all sorts of things that um, we don't really have any longer, you know, called Flip, Dog's Nose, Sangaree, which is an American cocktail he came across, Pearl, and they're sort of all type. They're usually types of beer or ale, or they might be a sort of a you know liqueur or something. Um, and a lot of those we have disappeared. But Dickens writes just sort of his characters just drink them as a matter of course. Um, so on TV at the moment, we've seen recently Victorian bakers. We've seen the sweet makers, which features confectioners going back through the decades and the centuries. And we've also seen Back in Time for Dinner has been very successful. Why do you think there seems to be a real resurgence of interest in historical cooking at the moment? I think it's because historical food enables you to taste the past. It's the most perfect way into social history. 
And we're always interested in social history. But if you recreate something, that experience of recreating it puts you in touch with, you know, your great, 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 great grandmothers or grandfathers or whoever was in the kitchen. And you start questioning who those people were, what circumstances they were cooking under, and who they were cooking for. Were they cooking for their families? Were they cooking for their employers? What was the relationship between, you know, the mistress and her servants? And so food is right at the heart of a huge kind of number of kind of interesting questions and pathways that you can start exploring about people's lives. And you get to eat it and taste it. And what could be better than that? That was Pen Vogler. Dinner with Dickens, recipes inspired by the life and works of Charles Dickens, is out now in the UK and the US, published by CICO Books. Well, that's about it for today, but please do listen in on Thursday when the great historical novelist Bernard Cornwall will be discussing Shakespeare with us. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.